Hello, I'm George Cup. And I'm Callum Gurr. And you're about to listen to the podcast version of To Be Discussed with Cup and Gurr. Please note that this is a podcast, so it's not a live broadcast. So please do not try to vote in any of the polls or send in messages to any of our discussions, as your message will not be registered, but you may still be charged. Also, please note that not all of the opinions expressed in this podcast are our actual opinions, but may be expressed to create a better discussion. Anyway, enjoy the podcast and don't miss our live broadcast every Sunday on Wizard Radio Station. Good evening, this is To Be Discussed with Cap and Gurr, a show that proves that different political opinions do not have to end in feuds and the breakdown of friendships. My name is George Cuff and I'll be joined by my co-host and political opposite, Callum Gurr. Good evening everybody. That's right, George is a hardline Brexiteer and true blue conservative, whereas I'm a Lib Dem and Ramona. But despite these different standards, we are still good friends. Tonight we'll be discussing the following. Are the Lib Dems starting to become a force within politics? What should the government's approach be around undergraduate student and maintenance loans? And thirdly, given the opportunity, would you walk on the moon? With each of these discussions being accompanied by polls, which you have the chance to vote on at wizardradio.co.uk forward slash listen. And these discussions will be open until the end of the song break between each topic. But first, last week, we asked you to send us in your opinions on this question. Do you think the UK's driving tests are a fair way to test your ability in driving and why? So here in the UK, when you reach the age of 17, you have the right to apply for your provisional licence, which allows you to start taking driving lessons on the road. And then... Um, which means you can drive anywhere and you can drive a car or whatever you've taken the test in. Um, in 2017, the driving test got um, renewed. It, they brought new items into it that you had to do. So um, you had to do everything from go from a sat-nav, so elections, you had to drive to that. Um, and then you had to do an independent drive, which was up to 20 minutes. And then in the it was only, but there is a massive question around whether or not it is going to teach you what to do on the road when you're by yourself in a car for, for the rest of your life. Um, and we wanted to hear what you guys have been thought, have been thinking about this. So our first opinion is from Alana, and she says, I think it's always going to be difficult with something like driving to test it because it's it is something that you do so often and there are so many different situations and scenarios you could be in that the test couldn't possibly cover everything. But the driving test definitely co- covers off the basics and makes sure that you know the most important things that you need to know to be able to drive in the UK. So I do think that it is a fair way to test your ability. I feel like once you have passed the driving test, you do know everything you need to know skill wise. So surely that's a clear indication that it's the right way to test driving. Callum, what are your thoughts? Yeah, no, I think, um, I mean, I uh, <laughs> just just <laughs> kind of for full disclosure, I don't drive at the moment. I have done the driving test before um, uh, before u- university, didn't manage to pass. And then because I didn't want to be spending all my summers off from uni learning, I haven't kind of got back on that horse as such at the moment. Um, so I have experienced the driving test and, and kind of driving lessons in general. And I do think that Alana's right in saying that ultimately when, when you um, when you pass the driving test, you do generally know mo- most of what you will need to know. I think possibly there's a, there's a slight issue in 
um, when it comes to kind of actual parking and actual doing the manoeuvres in, in kind of a real scenario where there's a, a kind of a lot more on the line, maybe I don't think it, um, I don't think the driving tests and driving lessons necessarily prepare you as well for that as they could. But I also think it's very difficult without putting kind of real things on the line for them to actually test that. So I think broadly, the driving test is a fair way to test your ability in driving. I think Alana's kind of right in what she said. Uh, what what do you think, George? Um, well, as as I'm sure most of our regular listeners know, that I um, am lucky enough to drive and. Um, not to, to rub salt in the wound, but I passed my first time um, with no minors. Um, <laughs> but um, I I think it is quite a good good test, and I think it's it's vital that they've brought these new changes in as well because. Um, Rightly so, as time has gone on, we drive in a different way. We rely on sat-navs a lot more. Um, the manoeuvres we do nowadays are different to what they used to be because turning circles of cars are different. They're, they're better now. Um, and, I, and I feel like it, it is a good way to test your ability to drive. Um, uh, it is incredibly hard to be able to test someone in every single scenario you're going to get as an everyday driver. Um, you know, even I've been driving now for four and a half years and even now I'm still learning different things from different encounters I have each day out driving because you can't cover everything you know I do believe however we should see a element of wet driving in in the exam on a um a skid course or something I think we should be able to we should be taught how to drive in the snow as well because I do believe snow is becoming um more frequent in this country now um so i do think there could be different things that could be highlighted but as a overall test i do believe the abilities are are being tested correctly fair enough i mean obviously with the the snow and the, the wet driving example i mean the, the practicalities of that would be quite uh difficult to do that and, and replicate that across test centers across the country i mean do you think that if we were to introduce more um, kind of um, replicating wet driving conditions or snowy driving conditions, maybe that would have to lead to there being less test centres available, but there'd be of kind of a, a higher quality. Or how, how would you actually see that practically working, George? I think um, we would have to have a, a place where we can go. I don't think you'd, you'd have to do it on the day i think it would be like having a theory okay. you have a theory in one location then you have your skid test in one lo or your wet test in one location then your proper driving street test in another location um because there are quite there are some um skid pads around the area um but i mean in where we're from uh, we're lucky enough to have a test center that's got quite a large area around it and for somewhere like that they could i personally think they could facilitate having a kind of skid pad there um to allow people to, to take that wet test okay very very interesting uh, talking of interesting opinions let's move on to Reese's Reese says I don't feel like the driving test as it is at the moment really gives you that real life experience for uh, for what it's like once you take the L plates off and start driving properly I found that I really learned the most about driving after the test once I was just driving around and started realizing different ways to do different things better I kind of think the driving training period needs to be longer than, than because of all of the driving lessons you have before the test are just a taster for what it's actually like, especially driving on motorways and main roads. My driving teacher avoided all of that to try to make it as easy as possible for me, which only made it harder once I had actually passed my test and needed to drive on those sorts of roads. I mean, what, what do you think of that, George? Well, I would question your driving instructor as to why they've um, not taken you on those harder roads, because at the end of the day, this is lessons that you're being given and yeah. you should have been taken on these roads to be taught how to handle um, yourself on them. And, and also elements of the test uh, driving test should also have highlighted that as well. Right? Yeah. If, if you aren't sufficiently taught from a driving instructor, then surely you shouldn't be passing the test anyway. Um, and, 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 uh, I would argue kind of against Reese's point saying that these are only taster lessons, but 
at the end of the day, you don't. There's no set time of how long you have to have lessons for. If you don't feel you're you're ready, then you can keep having lessons. Um, there's nothing to say that you can't have over 20 lessons or or anything like that. You can have as many lessons as you like until you feel you're actually ready to take that test. Um, but at the same time, I do very much agree that there is definitely that kind of anxiousness that goes as soon as you pass your test. You know, you'll suddenly have the realisation of, oh, God, I've got to be in a car by myself, drive it on a main road without anybody in it um, in a car completely under control um, of your own. And it can be a very daunting thing. But as time goes on, I think you get used to it. Um, it's like anything new. You, you slowly get used to it and, and you learn what's comfortable for you. Um, but what what are your thoughts, Callum? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, another thing to probably raise would be that after you've passed, you can do the, uh, I can't remember the exact name of them, Pass Plus Test. Or, yes, that's or it, yeah. Something along those lines, um, uh, which generally focuses on these, these more difficult um, practicalities of driving, especially motorways, because are you allowed on motorways whilst you're learning to drive, George? Has it changed? Because I'm sure when I was learning to drive you you weren't allowed to be on there until you've actually passed or am i incorrect yeah so it used to be that you weren't ever allowed onto there but since 2018 um they changed the rules to allow you onto the motorway right i see i see but it, even so i think these these pass plus um courses generally would focus more on these these kind of scenarios to kind of ensure you're continuing improving um, yeah. And I suppose the the other thing I would say as well around kind of starting to realise different ways to do things better, um, they they might be kind of more convenient um, ways to do things, but they might not necessarily be kind of fully in compliance with the highway code and, and mm. things like this. I mean, I, I'm not entirely sure without kind of an example from Reese, but um, I would maybe caution um doing things too differently from what you've been taught because i think generally they're taught that way for a reason yeah no absolutely um right so our final opinion comes in from jordan and uh, they say there are definitely things that should change about the driving test which would make it better which would make a better way to make sure drivers are better prepared for driving. For one, I think that when you reach a certain age, maybe 70, you should have to retake the test because that would um, have been like 50 years since you passed and a lot changes in 50 years. Also, I think the theory part of the test needs to change because most of it you'll never use and isn't realistic, like the simulator part. And I feel like you don't really learn about those things that you'll rarely use, but are really important, like what to do in a crash or in a thun or in thunder and lightning, which I was driving through recently and terrified me. Uh, there should definitely be changes. Well, Callum, thoughts? Yeah, uh, I mean, in terms of retaking the tests for for people once they reach kind of a ballpark figure of seventy, um, I see in in many sense I, I feel it's it's slightly disrespectful to, to say to someone that's been driving for for 50 years maybe perfectly well to suddenly turn around and say oh you need to retake your test but at the same time I know <laughs> plenty of people who are over the age of 70 who probably would, <laughs> would never pass their test now should yeah. not really be on the road truth be told and and um it, it does make it dangerous for other drivers and pedestrians and cyclists on the road too. So um, I, I feel probably realistically kind of coming into a, a kind of halfway house between those two positions, um, we should maybe be looking at having a kind of more stripped back, more maybe more like a refresher training um, or a refresher assessment day, um, which isn't kind of as strenuous as the full test, just um, so that, people can see once they reach a certain age or maybe every 15 years or so just to just to check um that your driving ability is up to scratch to the onto the road that it doesn't put other people at risk um i i don't think it should be as blanket as to say that they should have to completely retake the test as such i mean what do you think jordan especially about kind of the point of the points about the theory test and and how maybe that should incorporate more what to do in a crash and during thunder and lightning and things like that. Um, I, I, 
around the the age limit, I definitely think we should be looking at refreshment courses because I think it's so important. But also, I would say that there, I know some twenty year olds um, that wouldn't be able to pass their test again, and they only took it two years ago. Yeah. Um, so. Um, I think it's really important that we are having refreshment courses, and I do think that's something that should be brought in. Um, in terms of the theory, I personally think the theory test is actually quite good. It teaches you a lot of the signs, and you might think, oh, I'm never going to use that. But sometimes you could be in the middle of nowhere, and you'll see a sign, and you actually remember what it means, um, and it can be quite helpful. Um, the reaction part of the, the test, the simulator part, I think, again, that's important because it teaches your reaction speed, teaches you how to, to watch out for people that are crossing the road. Um, and, I, and I do think it is important. But I do also believe that it, it could potentially um, include parts of how to act in a crash, how to act if, if you're, you've got a flat tyre, um, how to act if something's happened on your dashboard. You know, there are so many different scenarios that maybe we could cover. But if you go into that realm i do i think the test could go on for about a week um <laughs> so it could take quite a long time for you to pass but i mean you never know if if, if we might get to that one day uh, we might actually eventually have good drivers then uh <laughs> <laughs> right okay so remember we will be announcing what the question will be for you to send in your opinions on at the end of tonight's show so make sure you're ready for that for the chance to be featured in this segment of next week's show um we'll be back incredibly soon hello and welcome back to to be discussed right then time to move on to our second discussion of this evening and we are asking the question are the Lib Dems starting to become a force within politics so the local elections in early May and the European elections later in the month delivered outstanding results for the Liberal Democrats, with the party finishing in second place nationally for the latter election. This comes on the back of a YouGov poll which recently put the Lib Dems top nationally, suggesting the one-time junior partner in the 2010-15 coalition government are back amongst political relevance and vying for government, or at least to be the king or queenmaker once again. There is currently a leadership election taking place with Ed Davey and Joe Swinson both competing for the top job of the party. One question that the Lib Dem leadership contender will have to answer is whether the Lib Dems are a force again in politics and should pitch as such or whether they are an up and coming underdog. George, where do you think the answer is to this question? Are the Lib Dems starting to become a force again? Um, well, I, I think it's it's really interesting to see these polls um, and see how well they, they're, they're doing now. Personally, I think they are um, they're coming back into where they should have been. I think the support for the Lib Dems has always kind of been there, but it's never really and truly shown. Um, but I, I do also believe that the reason there has been such a surge in the polls is because of their stance on Brexit, um, the whole stop Brexit idea. And I personally believe that they are, um, if they were one policy party then i think they would be doing just as well if they were just a party to stop brexit i think they would still be doing just as well we've seen that with the brexit party they're just a one policy party at the moment um and it's because the attitudes of the general public are to either get on with brexit or to completely stop brexit and because of that they are doing very well because they are getting the audience of stop brexit you know they're getting it from the conservatives the late labor side and also of course their their core voters as well but what's really important is how the new leader is going to progress with with this percentage and where they're going to stand on certain issues because I believe that whoever the leader will be they need to make decisions on policies that will still be able to capture this high percentage of vote share that they potentially have um, and the new leader also needs to decide whether or not they're going to stay in the position that they are in terms of they are quite a central left party um, and if the if the conservatives decide to take a more no deal approach on Brexit, then essentially they'll be labelled as a more far right party. And there could be ground for the Lib Dems to move into the more central right area, which is where Nick Clegg took the party and we saw his success there. Um, but obviously that depends on, on where, where, they, where the leader decides to take them. I do believe that the leader should maybe take the party as an underdog coming up because 
with a new leader, they can go with a new approach, new policies, a new idea um, and a fresh outlook. I think as much as I respect Vince Cable, I think he's kind of just been... I don't know, plodding the party along in a way. Um, and obviously these elections have been very good, but I, I think by having a new leader, there'll be new um, and improved policies that the, that the Lib Dems can bring forward. But a question that I wanted to ask you, Callum, is do you think it's right of um, Vince Cable to be saying to the um, Change UK MPs that have now decided to leave Change UK, is it, is it right that he's turned around to them and said that, we would welcome you with open arms to join the Liberal Democrats. Is he doing this just to bolster his position in Parliament or is he doing it to, to prove that the Lib Dems are open to anyone that wants to stop Brexit? Um, I think the the short answer is that um, Change UK MPs and members are welcome to join the party if they're Liberals and Social Democrats. We are a Liberal and Social Democratic party. Um, so I think that rules out certain um or in terms of the high profile candidates that rules out certain high profile people from change uk from joining the lib dems but it also rules in some uh, certainly as well so if we look at kind of um anna salbury i don't see how she's in in any way compatible with the liberal democrats uh, i mean i think she suggested she was a social democrat this week which uh, I struggle to believe. I don't think she knows what a social democrat is. Um, <laughs> so, so, I, so in terms of Anna Salbury, I don't think there's any way. And, and probably all of the ones that have remained part of uh, Change UK for Change now, whatever they are, uh, <laughs> all of those that have stayed there, um, I, I, I can't see that they would fit the Liberal Democrats. I think the other ones, it's slightly more complicated. I think you could make a case for say. Heidi Allen, Sarah Wollaston joining the Liberal Democrats, possibly um, uh, Chuka Amuna, although his um, kind of opinions on drug policy are quite different to what the Lib Dems' opinions are, particularly as we're um, for the um, uh, legalisation of cannabis consumption, um, whereas my understanding is Chuka Amuna is much more kind of socially conservative about that but if you look at his his voting record most of the time it's been relatively in line actually with what the dem policy is um so i think the approach the new leader has to take on this is let's look at this on a case-by-case basis let's see whether or not um if they say oh we'd like to defect to you let's see whether they're just doing it because they basically want to capitalize on our infrastructure possibly our surge in polling and things like this, or whether it's actually because they realise now that we most uh, best reflect their views, and not just in terms of the, the Brexit question. And I think the Brexit question is really crucial to this wider question of whether or not we are becoming a kind of force within politics, because I think realistically we've got to say, and as you, you say, George, that the Lib Dems aren't really a force within politics at the moment out when Brexit is, is done and dusted whatever way it happens i think you see so many voters that are saying well we'll lend our vote to liberal democrats now because we want to stop brexit or we want a uh, a people's vote but we are not liberal democrats we will not be voting liberal democrats and uh, in in the future um and i i think a really good example of this is kind of alistair campbell uh, who obviously he's rank and file labor completely Labour, that's what he wants to vote, it's what he wants to be a member of and everything like that. He's literally just lended his vote to us to be a protest. Um, so I think we've got to be realistic and frank about the fact that at the moment that's why people are voting for us and why our polling's doing better. Um, it doesn't mean we can't convince a large proportion of those to continue to lend their votes to us, but I think realistically we're going to have to kind of reinvigorate our pitch and offer some new fresh and dynamic policies that aren't currently party policy um in order to do that i think but but what so i'm gonna i'm gonna put you on the spot here now um what do you think is is the best way for the potential new leader to implement these policies do you think these policies should be more uh, of the of the left ilk or do you think they should be more of the right side um I, I think personally that 
uh, this is going to sound like a really politician answer. I apologise, but I think we should be looking at these things on their merits. The the policies should be done based upon evidence. So obviously we've currently got the uh, legalisation of cannabis consumption policy, um, mm. but I, I I'd like to go further with that and be talking about kind of more whole scale drug um, jury decriminalisation to try and make sure that. Um, the kind of supply of drugs is not in the hands of of essentially uh, uh, drug lords and kind of gang masters as such, um, uh, and to try and regulate the quality of supply that's going into the market. Because I think if we if we have a look at what's been going on with the um, conservative leadership election race, where all of them seem to have had a history of using drugs at some point or the other. Mm. Mm. Um, but no one is is suggesting that these people should be going to jail for that, quite rightly. Um, and I think this shows the fact that even if we have a war on drugs, we're never going to win that war at the end of the day. So we so we need to have a kind of evidence-based policy that says, yes, it's not ideal for people to be taking drugs, uh, and we want to be encouraging people to get off of it. But actually, let's be mature about this and, and, and let's allow them to do that, but let's regulate it so that the quality is good enough that it's going to eliminate or at least reduce the risk of kind of fatalities around this. So I think that's one policy that we should be taking. Um, I, I think that's probably more of a, a right-wing policy than a left-wing policy in a sense, because I think it's more of a libertarian persuasion than anything. Yeah. Um. So... So there's that. But then also, I think we should be looking at things like uh, universal basic income or something like that as well, which probably would be more of the left. So I think really we've just got to be that kind of pragmatic, common sense, evidence based party, uh, which I, was one of the reasons why I joined the party in the first place. So I don't I think that it, it's strange from kind of because obviously you're a member of the conservative, George, I think unless you think of things in the in the left and the right, whereas I think uh, as kind of uh, liberals and, and social democrats, maybe we think about things in, on a kind of different axes in terms of liberal versus authoritarian. Um, mm. And and so that's where uh, our policies should be coming from, the liberal and social democratic persuasion. Yeah, no, I, I, I do absolutely agree with you. Um, I Sorry to keep talking about it, but I'm going to. Yeah. Um, I, I think also, personally, I think the, the Lib Dems are in quite a good position in terms that I think if Brexit does happen, either way, whether it's with a deal or no deal, if the Lib Dems still keep the policy that they are determined to deliver a second referendum throughout the terms of Brexit even being implemented, you can still have that policy in place that you would want to implement having a second referendum. I do believe that you would still gain a lot of votes because of that. I mean, if we look at the SNP, for example, I believe that a lot of the votes from the SNP are because they still believe in, in becoming independent. They believe in, in in a second referendum as well in for their independence uh, as a nation. Um, and I think that's why they have been doing so well in politics as well. So in the long run, if the Lib Dems, uh, if Brexit happens and the Lib Dems still have the policy of we want a second referendum, I personally think they will still be able to keep quite a high share of the percentage because, as we've seen, if Labour don't take up that position, then I think the Lib Dems will be um, very good to mop up those votes. Yeah, I mean, just um, that does bring on to just a very quick question for you, George. I mean, who do you think that a, a Lib Dem, the Lib Dems becoming a force again, risks more or threatens the votes of more, the Conservatives or, or Labour? Um, I think in today, in right now, I would say it definitely is um, the the Labour Party. Um, I think they are. People are losing disbelief in uh, – sorry, they're losing belief in the Labour Party in terms of Brexit and everything, and that is why we've seen a lot of the surgeons in, uh, in uh, the Lib Dems. So I, I do think it will probably affect more Labour, especially if Labour keep going further and further left. Okay, very interesting. Right then, time to move on to our second song break of this evening. But remember to vote on this part. Are the Lib Dems starting to become a force within politics? You can do that at Wizard Radio. Code.uk forward slash listen. And we'll be back very soon.
and welcome back to To Be Discussed. So before the break, we ask, are the Lib Dems starting to become a force within politics? And to find out the results to that poll, head over to our Twitter page, that's at Wids Radio. Right, okay, let's move over to our third discussion of this evening, which is, of course, our multi-poll option, which I'm sure you all are looking forward to. Um, so the question we're asking is, what should the government's approach be around undergraduate, student and maintenance loan? So uh, the options for this are scrap them, keep them the same, reduce them to £7,500 per year, or reintroduce maintenance grants. So when Callum and I went to university, which was around, well, started university, which was around four years ago now, um, we had the opportunity to apply for a, a, a student loan and also back then it was maintenance grants. Um, so we were able to get, it was a maintenance, a maintenance grant of, I think it was up to £6,000 and then student loan of £9,500 per year. Um, Theresa May recently came out saying that she doesn't believe that it's right to get rid of uh, student loans altogether, but she does think it should be um, put down or decreased to £7,500 a year. Or if we take the Labour approach, I mean, if this is their approach because they denied it last election, but um, whether to scrap them all together and to make further education or higher education free, um, or that's the Lib Dems um, old old line that they <laughs> um or essentially what we could be doing is reintroducing maintenance grants instead of having them as loans because having them as grants means you won't have to pay them back and it means that the i don't like using this word but it means the debt as such won't be as much when you come to pay it back um i'm sure callum as well uh, has received his lovely payment or, or bank statement from uh the how much money we owe the the government and and it's about thirty eight thousand pounds for myself which is isn't the the nicest thing to see but it's it's essentially in my opinion it's not a debt but callum out of those options what do you think the government's approach should be um well i think um Firstly, yeah, I mean, I, I agree. It's not necessarily a debt. It's more like a tax, I suppose. Um, a tax that runs out after 30 years or so. Um, but um, in terms of how the government should approach this now, I think the the main thing they should do is reintroduce the maintenance grants because um, just to kind of explain what I mean by that, so, so the maintenance uh, grants is basically... Um, it's to help with the living costs, i.e. the maintenance of your stay during university. Um, so it's so generally those whose parents have less uh, money will get more in terms of a maintenance grant. Um, and a maintenance grant would be something you wouldn't have to pay back. So it's, it's kind of given to you by the government to support your uh, studies so it helps those that are the least well off um, to kind of survive and thrive at university uh, and what's happened um, nowadays is that these have become part of the loan as well um, so effectively where you might have got I think as you say George up to 6,000 um, given to you by the government to help support your studies now you will maybe get given that 6000 but you're going to have to pay it back. So what effectively that means is um, that we're charging those least well-off more to go to university than those the most well-off because they would get less um, in terms of a maintenance loan. Uh, and so, so from my perspective, that's completely ludicrous. Uh, I think we should be looking at ways to reduce the cost for those least well-off um, or those, those from families who are least well-off uh, and um, make those that are from better off families possibly pay a, a little bit more just to make the system balance out because what we should be aiming for is kind of, um, well, equality, but equality of opportunity and things like this. Um, so from my perspective, I think that the main thing that the government should be looking to do is reintroduce these as maintenance grants because I think Yes, reducing them to seven thousand five hundred per year is is a good thing, but I I I think if you do that in tandem with still having maintenance um, loans rather than grants, you're still going to be making those who are less well off pay more to go to university. Uh, in terms of keeping them the same, I think um, in terms of the loan system, 
I think um, thanks to the Liberal Democrats' role in government, I think the loan system is a really good one uh, that we we wouldn't have seen if the Liberal Democrats weren't in government then. Um, <laughs> and I, I think that in general the system's fine. I mean, I'm not opposed to reducing the fees that people pay, but I think the main thing we should be focusing on is these maintenance grants. And in terms of scrapping them, uh, I think it's a bit disingenuous to say that then university education becomes free because it doesn't. It just means that everyone else pays for it too. And that's from someone, you know, who's had to go and get these big kind of debts or tax built up as such. So, so that's my perspective, reintroduce maintenance grants. What do you think, George? Um, I think uh, student loans and, and maintenance loans or maintenance grants have been a massive political ball game for a very long time. Um, they seem to each political party is it's it's a very key area for a party to have a policy upon this, and it's a way that they know they can possibly gain a lot of votes. We saw it in the 2017 general elections because um, we saw Labour gain a lot of student votes when they promised that they would scrap tuition fees altogether, um, and Again, that never really happened. Um, so I, I, I think in terms of that, I think it's wrong that we are that politics choose to play it as a ball game and just bat it around like it doesn't really mean much sometimes. But in, in the same way, and I think maybe I sh we should have had this as an option, but I think one of the key things we can do around this is to change the language around it for so long. People call it a debt. People call it the wrong way, the wrong things. And I think by calling it a debt, it puts a a stance upon it that doesn't need to be taken. Um, I think it makes it seem very scary. It makes it seem like um, you're going to have to pay all this money back in one lump sum. Uh, and it's completely wrong. Um, at the end of the day, as much as these are loans, they are the cheapest loans you'll ever have. They, You won't even ever see that money. Once you earn over £25,000, it will come out with your taxes. So you won't even be able to get that money. Um, and it's it's a very minimal amount that you'll be paying back each month. And as soon as you get to 50, they get written off anyway. Um, so I, I just I think the language around them does definitely, definitely need to be changed. Um, but in my opinion, I do think the reintroduction of maintenance grants is, is a good idea. I really do. Um, it, we, I think that there needs to be more research around how it can be funded. Um, but because when I started university, I got maintenance grants. I got, I got quite a large maintenance grant because of the situation I was in. Um, and I, I wouldn't have been able to survive university without this. And I think that's the key thing around these supposed loans is that since these have been introduced, um, less off families, the children of less off families have been going to university. I mean, we've seen the, the rise in as such working class families going to university because they can afford to do it because they're getting the money to, to, to go. Um, and I think reducing them to £7,500 a year. Yeah, I think that will be a good approach. I think, although personally, I think it's kind of just like more of a tagline to say that it looks cheaper than it actually is because at the end of the day you're still going to potentially earn a lot of money uh, um and yeah i just think it's more of a tagline than anything scrap them all together i think it's just unfeasible it's a lot of money and why is it fair that other people that choose to go and do vocational courses have to pay that will have to pay taxes have to pay for um those that go to university i just think that's personally wrong in my opinion um so so yeah personally i would back the reintroduction of maintenance grants if we could afford it as a country and the reduction of uh, reducing £7,500. A little question for you, Callum. When you does is, is this so-called debt? And again, I hate using that word, but debt. Is it does it scare you? Is it something that is always on the back of your mind? Are you worried about paying it back? Are you worried about um, the impact that it can have on you? Because as such, this it will never affect you getting a uh, impact you getting a mortgage if you can't pay it back you're not going to have um, bailiffs on your door but so does it does it scare you um not in the way that a traditional kind of debt would um yeah. but i but i think that when you get that letter through the post or an email or, or, or wherever you receive it through telling you that you owe this much money um, which, as you say, you might not necessarily have to pay back, but that you could end up paying back. Of course, that is a bit of a scary thing, I think, realistically. Um, but I don't think it... 
it kind of in short i don't think it scares me in the way that a, a mortgage may well end up scaring me what about you george no i i, I personally don't it doesn't scare me at all really because i know if i'm not in the position to pay it back then i don't have to pay it back um and you're quite right to say you know i have a um a small loan out of my car and if i don't pay that back then essentially either that car can get taken away from me or i'll have bailiffs knocking on my door requesting money from me um and you know in the terms of the the degree if you don't pay it back you're not going to have a bailiff on your door taking your degree away from you um so it works very differently so i know it's for me it's not something i'm scared of at all no not at all good good um uh, just a, a question to you george then uh obviously the the question that we posed is around undergraduate student and maintenance loans but i mm. actually think that possibly uh, other than the the maintenance grant as such i think it maybe slightly misses the point because i think one of the big problems is in terms of master's degrees or postgraduate degrees, I think these very much do still only really work for, for middle class kids. And, and that's because you can get a loan of up to uh, 10000 from the government uh, that works in a very similar way to what a uh, the undergraduate loans do. However, a lot of courses, a lot of the best courses as well, are not worth ten thousand they're actually worth more like fifteen sixteen thousand so therefore what it means is that um the people that end up going and getting master's degrees and postgraduate degrees generally come from better off backgrounds um because of the fact that um those from more working class backgrounds can't afford to um pay off the the or pay the loan straight away um to get the uh master's degree if that makes sense um so do you mm. think that we should almost be talking more about master's degrees and and making uh, either increasing the loan that is available so that it covers all courses or reducing the um the fee which people pay for master's degrees what do you think george um i think it's a really hard question if i'm honest because i there's always this argument, and it was around the when when um, student loans first got introduced. It was a uh, um, it was around the time where it, they they turned around and said the, the negative of it is is it's making university more accessible and it's making people go and do degrees when necessarily they shouldn't be going to degrees or it's something to do. Some people just are going to university just because, um, yeah. and it makes it too accessible. And I take the argument forward in terms of the masters. The masters are a very unique area, and I think they are incredibly hard. Um, and I don't think we should be making them too accessible because at the moment, masters um, are very special uh, and um, prestigious things to have. They're, they're, they are a title to your name. They're prestigious to have. And I, and I think yeah. that we need to keep them like that. Can I, um, can, yeah, can go I for just... it. Uh, kind of take issue with that though but shouldn't we be in uh, making them more accessible or or trying to stop making them as accessible shouldn't that be based more upon kind of educational requirements rather than financial but i mean how 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 can we determine of who if they've got a degree how can we say that they are capable of going to do a master's or not in terms of a an educational background are you saying that you would have to get a first to get to go and do a master's or something like that um possibly or there could be an entry level test or have done um demonstrated um a passion for the subject by getting work experience in that which obviously that brings on a whole other question of how you make that more accessible for people who are less financially well off but my point is that I think surely the criteria shouldn't be based upon how much you earn or your parents earn. It should be based upon uh, what kind of grades you can get and what kind of application you've demonstrated for whatever you're applying for a postgraduate degree in. Yeah, no, fair enough. And I'm going to be a politician and dodge dodge your point. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so who who do you think is going to come out on top, Callum? Um, what do you think? Not who? I think the maintenance grants will come out on top, or, although, or, or will the scrap them? No, I'm going to go maintenance grants. What about you, George? Um, 
I'm going to say scrap them, unfortunately. I don't okay. want to say it, but be we're... interesting to um, see. It will be interesting to see, won't it, Callum? Yeah. <laughs> um, remember to vote on this question. What should the government's approach be around undergraduate student and maintenance loans? And remember, the options are to scrap them, keep them the same, reduce them to £7,500 a year, uh, reintroduce or reintroduce maintenance grants. And you could do that at wizardradio.co.uk forward slash listen. We'll be back before you even know it. Hello and welcome back. So before that break, we asked the question, what should the government's approach be around what should the government's approach be around undergraduate student and maintenance loans? Um, and you can find out the results of that on our Twitter page. That's at Wiz Radio. Callum, good luck introducing the next one. Try not to muck it up like I did. <laughs> uh, don't worry, I won't. Um, right then, time to move on to our fourth discussion of this evening and we are asking given the opportunity would you walk on the moon so we are asking our listeners and you george whether or not you'd want to follow in the footsteps of buzz aldrin and neil armstrong by walking on the moon i'm not going to do too long of an introduction on this one uh, mainly so i don't muck it up george as you say uh, so george given the opportunity would you want to walk on the moon Oh, I mean, the, these last questions are getting random, more random and random as the week goes on, aren't they, really? We'll be talking um, about aliens I, soon. I mean, we, yeah, let's, don't get me started on aliens, kind of. Yeah, we won't. We won't. Uh, <laughs> by, by the end of the year, who knows what it's going to be? <laughs> um, we might not have a show. No, we will. No, maybe. I don't know. Uh, I, when I want to walk on the moon, I, given the opportunity of want to walk on the moon i would love to walk on the moon. it'd be amazing um to see the world in all its awe and and, and just see its beauty um and, and i think it'd be amazing to experience that that lack of gravity to be able to i would actually eventually be able to jump quite high um and maybe be quite com- competitive in some sports that i'd never have been in, in the past um so I, I think it would be such an experience and i do believe that Maybe not in our lifetime, Callum, but I do believe in a, in, a, in, a, in a lifetime you will be able to do that. And I think it will be like a commercial thing to go up and walk on the moon. Um, it will be like the, the activity walking over the O2. You'll be walking over the moon, um, which which will be amazing. It genuinely, genuinely would be amazing. What, what are your thoughts, though? Do, are you, is there a, a Neil Armstrong in you somewhere? <laughs> I definitely think there is. I mean, obviously, I'd, I'd like to walk on the moon too. I think, as you say, George, it will become a commercial opportunity if we look at um, Virgin Galactic, which is kind of trying to do this, make it more commercially viable. Of course, only really for the rich and famous at the moment. Um, but generally, <laughs> uh, what we see with these kind of things is, yes, at first, it's more of an exclusive thing, uh, but then a kind of competitor comes along and makes it um, far more accessible for everyone else kind of similar to how holidays abroad used to be really only for the very well off but nowadays um, with kind of low uh, budget airlines available um, we can we can do um, we can go on holiday a lot more so I, I mean it's probably a fair few years away probably not within our lifetime but it will become much more accessible I believe um, to go and visit space although probably not quite to the uh, prevalence at which uh, you can go across to, to Spain or, or to Portugal or wherever you want to go. Um, in terms of kind of the more general about walking on the moon, I mean, the practicalities of it as well, though, I mean, I think that you, you probably have to have undergone um, quite strenuous kind of physical training to be, to be fit enough to go on there. Uh, and also to to bring in George what you said about uh, doing well in sports I think yeah we could become the world champion pairing in the high jump or something like that I mean what, what do you say to that George? Yeah I mean I think there's better people out there than you but um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I I just I've just got this image in my head you saying about these budget package holidays you know in, in about 100 years time family sitting down going where should we go this year should we go Spain Benidorm no how about the package holiday to the moon <laughs> you know, well, it's, it's, 
I'm just imagining um, people who they they finish school, a group of lads finish school, and they're like, should we go? Should we go, Malia, Ayanapa? Now let's go to the moon. I mean, <laughs> what what a great holiday that would be. I mean, I I think that would have been better than when I went to Antarctica, to be honest. I mean, George, do you think me and you should be looking for our summer holiday to pack our bags and go off to the moon? I mean, if that if that was possible then absolutely i would i, I will uh, i'll see what i can do in terms of uh, contacting a space program see if they want to employ us as their astronauts you know how about how about that everyone we could have that as a as a uh, show cup and go in space <laughs> uh, i'd just say we could just build our own you know i'm sure we've build got, our own yeah we've got a great many listeners i'm sure who are engineers and such uh, maybe they could help us out you know we could you can come too any yeah. engineers you can come with us as well we we'll just have uh, to make it quite a big um, rocket or whatever we need. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll start up a GoFundMe page, um, www.gofundcupandgo.getspace.com, um, <laughs> and, and and we'll we'll make the first space shuttle bus. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to that trip. It's going to be a once in a lifetime trip for Beautiful. sure. Beautiful. Right then, we've reached time to go on to our final song break of this evening. After that utter dribble that we just taught <laughs> uh don't forget to vote on this poll given the opportunity would you walk on the moon you can do that at wizardradio.co.uk forward slash listen and we'll be back very soon Hello and welcome back. So before the break we asked, given the opportunity, would you walk on the moon? And to find out the results to that poll, head over to our Twitter page. That's at Wiz Radio. Right then, we've actually reached the time to end this evening's show. Thanks very much for listening to To Be Discussed with Puffing Bear. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. So as mentioned earlier, for the first segment of next week's show, we'd like to hear your thoughts on this question. Is D-Day the most important moment in history? You can do that by sending us an email to station at wizardradio.co.uk or through Twitter, that's at wizradio. So remember, that question is, is D-Day the most important moment in history? And we're, as always, looking forward to hearing your opinions next week. But it is now time for Callum and I to be leaving. So, as always, I've been an astronaut-in-waiting George Lawrence Cup. Uh, and I've been already on the moon, Callum Gert. <laughs> Thanks very much for listening, everyone. We'll be back next week for another episode of To Be Discussed. Goodbye, guys. Ciao for now.